Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com The Podcast Playground. Buzz Knight here for Taking a Walk, and welcome to another classic replay. It was about last year at this time that I took a journey down to the Philadelphia area to meet up with a maestro of the keyboards, an outstanding guy, Bill Payne, founding member of the great band Little Feet. They're still out these days playing great live performances with amazing perfection. We'll talk to Bill Payne from Little Feet next on this classic replay of Taking a Walk. Well, Billy Payne, it is so great to be with you, Taking a Walk. How are you, my friend? You know, I'm a, I feel good. We, we, it's been an intense month or so. Uh, last night we played, what you were, you were there at the Beacon Theater in New York, and the, the audience, not only there, but, but every place we've played has just been, they've been ecstatic. Um, I think they come in with this expectation that we'll be good, but they don't know. <laughs> Although the word is out now that the, the drum beat is that we're doing okay. But uh, in the beginning, we'd, we'd hit the stage, and I'd be looking at people, and they're like, please make this work. <laughs> and uh, when they hear it from the opening salvos of, of the concert, they're like, they kind of relax, and then they just, they just it's just pure joy. And I, I feel so proud to be a part of that it is pure joy the audience loves it uh it's the uh anniversary waiting for columbus tour kind of sort of right yeah it's 45 years uh which is uh, you know 
an interesting, usually you'll wait till 50 years, but I think, we, <laughs> I think choosing 45 years is a good thing. I'm, I'm, I just turned 73 in March. I play like I'm a 20-year-old, but uh, uh, facts are facts. <laughs> I love it. I love how you're playing. I love how the band is playing. So when did you first realize that you were hooked on being a musician? Well, I think that's an excellent question. I was gonna, uh, I'll twist it just a little bit and say that I realized that I was a musician first when my woodshop teacher, uh, Mr. O'Connell, said, I'll give you a passing grade, Bill, but stay away from the sauce. <laughs> that went, stuck with you. It was in seventh grade. I went, really? He knows that I play? Well, I've been playing for a while. I started playing piano when I was five, taking lessons from Ruth Newman in Ventura. Uh, but I think... So when I was 15 and started playing in a band, I think that kind of solidified the camaraderie of, of what it is to be in a band. And it's, it's odd because the, there's so many things in life. You think, oh, I'm from the Groucho, uh, Groucho Marx School of Thought, which is I would never... Ex- uh, Except an invitation to a club that would bring me in as a member, uh, and yet <laughs> I gotta say that being a musician and being in a band is the ultimate club, other than maybe being a, a president or, or somebody like that. We, we, Keith Richards, when I was in Amsterdam, um, '74, maybe '75, we were down the basement. We, the Stones had come on mass to hear Little Feet play. Um, Shop Eden Hall, I think it was called. And I'm down there, I'm going, oh, Keith, oh, my gosh. He, go, he grabbed me around the shoulder, pulled me in tight, and he says, oh, mate, we're all part of the same cloth. And it was like, welcome to the club, Bill, you know. And, I, and then when I was reading his, his, uh, his biography, I can't remember the other fellow that wrote it with him, but he was had a... A similar thing when he was in the dressing room was Muddy Waters and Little Richard, right? And uh, he thought, well, if those are the cats, I must be one of the cats, too. So that was what he was sharing with me. And I've done that since with, with a lot of musicians because we are a part of something uh, not super special, but it's, 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 it's nice to be in that crowd. And the energy that comes from playing for an audience, right, is so special. Yeah, especially now, Buzz. I mean, not that it wasn't before, but I think music has taken on a a, a, a larger role. Uh, and for this reason, I'll, I'll tie it into to Richard Goodwin's book, which I've just started. Um, and that that book, I mean, I'll say it again. is It's called Remembering America: A Voice from the '60s. Fabulous book. Yeah, this man wrote speeches for. Uh, John Kennedy for, for his brother Robert later for G- Eugene McCarthy um, and for Lyndon Johnson I believe and uh, he looked at the 60s as a failure which indeed it was in many respects um, we find ourselves now 2022 and the pandemic hit in 2020 we're in that precipice again of what is America? Is it, is it a failure? Are we... And I, I, the way I've, I've sort of compartmentalized it is we, we are an aspirational country. 
our ideals are aspirational. I wrote a song called When, when All Boats Rise. Somebody wrote back to me in that combative, well, I don't have a boat. I said, well, it's not about you having a boat, okay? I mean, it's aspirationally, we ought to all have boats that will rise together when, when the tidings are good and when the tides are in. Um, but we don't have liberty and justice for all either, which is aspirational. So, uh, so, so for me, what is happening is, is music is is now binding people together. We don't in that audience. Nobody was discussing politics last night. They were digging, you know, Fat Man in the Bathtub. They're singing along with Willen. I mean, <laughs> we we can get a fight soon enough, but. It's nice to have something where we can kind of relieve the pressure a little bit. And, and thus, music is more important now than it's ever been. Yeah, I got chills when you're talking about it because really, uh, we, I talk about this in the Take On A Walk podcast. You know, why is music so important? Why is it so special? Why does it do the things in such a wonderful way to us that it does? It touches us. It lifts us up. It brings us down in a certain times. Yes. But it's it's such an amazing thing. So I'm so glad you you touched on the uh, the emotion of it and in a way the the neuroscience of it too. Right. Yeah, I think that the uh, it is not a benign art. Uh, I mean, Hitler used it to great effect. Um, we Trump used it to great effect with however he he put it together to stir people's souls in a certain way. Um, so it's not benign, but it ultimately it can be uplifting uh, and, uh, uh, and again, bind us rather than pull us apart. We, we just need those areas where it's like when you, when you get sick, your body's fighting something that it can't control. And what, what doctors try to provide, and, and oftentimes they can, but, but most stuff has got to come through your, your head, through your brain. And... And that part of it is, is allowing a, uh, a pressure release so your body can begin to function again. If this doesn't do it, if, 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 if things are tight and fighting against each other, yep. it never works. So there's that analogy too. And the uh, religious component, which is uh, uh, crazy, which we don't have to get into, but I, I would just uh, suggest it with, with, with Abraham Lincoln, who said, well, I don't remember the quote, but it was about which God is on our side. Is, it the, is he on our side or is he on the Confederacy? <laughs> you know, we, we've always got that, that thing going on. So we pick and choose. It's like a Chinese uh, menu with people on our, uh, our values and, and beliefs and core, core systems that we operate from. So on this day that we're taking a walk, coincidentally, yep. it also happens to be the birthday of Lowell George, which is yeah, uh, pretty remarkable. Yes. Um, so, tell me what you remember about the first time you met Lowell George. I was driving from Santa Barbara, actually Isla Vista, I think, was where I was sleeping in people's apartments. I was sleeping on the beach. Uh, I I was scared to death of driving on the freeways in L.A., so I hugged the the right-hand lane the, almost the entire way down. By the way, I still am scared to death when I drive there. <laughs> I don't blame you. It's, you just have to, it's like Gene Hackman in the French Connection. You just have to put the gas on the pedal and hope That's nobody right. hits you. Yeah, close your eyes. Yeah, go, you close your eyes and pretend it's a dream. Uh, anyway, um, 
I drove in Lowell's house. He was near, uh, gosh, it was on Rowena, um, near Silver Lake, but not, it was just west of Silver Lake. I can't remember the name of the town. But it was a, a little rustic home just off the street. The door was open. I heard some Eric Satie floating out of the front door. I walked up. There was this beautiful blonde girl, short, pixie kind of cut, uh, haircut and uh, cross-legged on the floor. She goes, oh, you must be Bill. Lowell's expecting you. He'll be back in five hours. I said, well, what does he do when he's not expecting you? <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I went in there. <laughs> five hours, you said? Yeah. yeah. What's he do when he's not expecting you? So I get in there and I start, first thing I see other than her and listening to this beautiful music is on the back wall there was a samurai sword to the right of that in the corner was a sitar um, adjacent to the sitar was a, a a library that had books by Carl Sandburg um, Allen Ginsberg Howell I think um, oh Last Exit to Brooklyn which is a brutal book <laughs> don't look it up everybody uh, uh, let's see and then, then he had this record collection, which was John Coltrane. Oh, he had uh, a couple of albums by Muddy Waters and, and Helen Wolf, Jester Burnett. He also had this uh, this record, um, the that had joined the band on it, and it was a Smithsonian recording of like chain gang music. Oh, oh Lordy, join the band, big bull rat gonna join the band. Which we opened up waiting for Columbus with. Yeah. So all the all that stuff was there, and by the time he came in, there's there this famous story of Che Guevara and, and Fidel Castro. For the first time they met, they talked about everything under the sun, and that's kind of the way Law and I hit it off. By the time he got there, I actually felt I kind of knew him, but I didn't know him. <laughs> and so we just discussed everything. And it wasn't like I didn't join the band that evening. I I'd come to Los Angeles ostensibly to, uh, to meet Frank Zappa. Well, Frank's over in Europe, so the record company, after many, many calls, uh, which I did with a phony credit card, much like uh, uh, Steve Jobs and his partners, they were, everyone was using these, these cards to make calls. And I, well, I'm Bill Payne, and I, who, what? Uh, I, I play keyboards, I think, and uh, no. yes. <laughs> that kind of thing. So I was nervous as hell. I didn't know how to start. And they finally cooked me up with Lowell. Um, and yeah, the, the guy was just such an engaging, warm human being. I just felt like, well, this is cool. He said, well, come back in a couple of weeks and let's try and write something. So I did. And I think one of the, we were writing all these crazy songs that we presented to Ahmed Erdogan. Dancing the Nubile Virgin Slaves <laughs> was one of them. It was an instrumental. <laughs> and I don't know what else we had, but uh, but Ahmed heard the stuff, and he looks at us, he goes, boys, it's too diverse. And we uh, <laughs> we went back to the drawing room, and I think we started writing Truck Stop Girl, Brides of Jesus, Gunboat Captain Gunboat Willie, Strawberry Flats, I mean, all these, Hamburger Midnight, so all these songs that... The titles alone suggested there's some real eclectic thought going on, and there was. So you can only imagine what we played for, for, for Ahmet. 
to have them say it was too diverse. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the essence of Little Feet, the essence of, of where Lowell and I saw the vision for this band was its, was its eclecticism. Uh, it was an open proposition who we do we need horns? Do we need another guitar player? Do we want somebody else to fill in on keyboards every now and then? What are we going to do? Let's leave it open. Let's bring what we need when we need it. And uh, it kind of set the tone of where we are now, which is how can we call this band Little Feet? We don't have Law, we don't have Richie Hayward, our drummer. We don't have Paul Barrera, who passed away in 2019. We do it because we have the music, the catalog, and we're still writing. I've written 20 songs with Robert Hunter. Um, I've written nine songs, I think, with Paul Muldoon, who just did the editing for Paul McCartney's uh, book of lyrics. He wrote the uh, foreword as well. So there's, uh, it kind of boils down to music. And for a guy that was brought up playing classical music, um, I think, well, all right, Beethoven's not around. We still play his music. One guy years ago, Buzz, was saying, not to me personally, but they talking to a friend of his, he goes, well, why, why, why is Bill playing uh, you know, New Orleans music? He's not from there. Well, my parents were married there, so that's okay. But I, I told the guy, I said, well, tell him I, I'm not from Vienna and I play Mozart. I'm not from Hamburg and I play Beethoven. Is that okay with him? Love it. And I love how you brought it full circle to the present in terms of where Little Feet is today. Yeah. Uh, and where that foundation that you and Lowell sort of laid out really to this day is uh, the backbone of what Feet is all about, right? And you, you know, stay true to that. You know? Yeah, I think uh, very few bands have a North Star. Very few people do. I mean, it's not anything you contemplate. I, I mean, even when Lowell and I were sorting that out, I didn't project you know, 50 years in the future plus to say this is what I'd be doing. I mean, I knew I'd be playing music. I mean, the only gig I've ever had, the legitimate gig I've ever had, was a paper boy. Uh, so I played music all my life. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, it's, a, it's an extraordinary thing to, to be able to, to uh, converse with people in many different creative ways, whether it's through my photography, through my writing, through my music, through songwriting. Uh, so there's a lot of subsets to everything, right? And uh, this to friends, uh, I mean, to have this conversation with you, Buzz, I mean, um, these are the things you, you hope will happen in the beginning, that you'll be connected uh, to inquisitive people. Um, and the curse of the Chinese living interesting times, which we definitely do. Um, but have people that you can lean on during those times that uh, don't necessarily hold the same beliefs, but, but hold that, that deeper belief in that uh, there's a path we have in front of us, there are divergent paths. How do we ultimately connect through all that? That, that to me, is the, the thing that really works. So it's, I'm not a purist. If I want to play some jazz and throw in some stuff, that, that's what we took the audience on last night. Uh, we were rock and roll with, with old Atlanta, with Fat Man in the Bathtub, with Paul's, <laughs> Paul's tune, Old Folks Boogie. 
and you pop in a day or night, mercenary territory. And it just takes you to another world. And it's like, that's what that transport, uh, formative and transportation of music is the most fun. Dino play, and we're listening while we play, obviously, but I, I, I every now and then we'll look out at the audience and be like, yeah, this is, this is a time to sit down let this music wash over me. Now, now we can get up and dance or what we want to do. And you can't make anybody do anything. There's not cue cards saying, get up and dance, everyone. They either do it or they don't. It's the old adage of the gig itself. I think it was Goldwyn who said, if they're not going to show up, you can't stop them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I first went to that show that I referenced at the uh, University of Cincinnati Fieldhouse, the show that I believe sort of changed my my life in terms of the magic of an amazing performance. I remember some of my buddies from the University of Dayton, where I went to school, saying, "You got to check this band out. You've never heard anything like this band." And that's what we did then, right? We were we were guys who were starting out at the radio station back there, and we just shared experiences before there was, you know, social networks and everything. And they said, "You got to listen to this band." It's nothing like you've ever heard before. You can't compare them to anybody, which is so true. And then they were like, you got to go see this band. So, you know, I'm so grateful for them turning me on to you guys. And uh, I'll, never, I'll never forget it, really, you know. Um, so what, what led to the period with, with Lowell deciding uh, he had had enough? I know he had put out a solo album and everything. I mean... There were differences, right? Yeah, he and I were loggerheads, and uh, I'd actually quit the band. I said, I, I can't take this, man. We take two steps forward, three steps back, one step forward, etc. And uh, I, I got to do something else. If you want to continue, little feet, please do. What I would suggest you do, however, is you love producing albums. Produce a couple more records. Uh, do your solo thing. You've been working on that for a long time. Get out there and play your music. And uh, and then test the waters and see what... You, you need to make yourself happy. That is not happening right now. And when you're unhappy, it's like, it just... I'm, I'm not easy to get along with sometimes. And uh, so we, we just kind of let it go. But it was uh, uh, under that, that guise that... He went on that last tour, and I got the call that he'd passed away in Washington, D.C., um, following, a, a, by all accounts, a brilliant performance of his solo uh, endeavors. Yes. And Fred Tackett was out on that tour. So... And you had been doing so much, uh, like, session work also, right? You had work okay. with so many people from... Obviously, Jackson Brown to Bob Seger and Doobie Brothers, and so you you had some side action going on always, right? Always, even when I was in Santa Maria, there was a I was with a group called the Debonairs, but there was a, a group called the Chevrons. <laughs> I'd, I'd sit in with them, and uh, you know, I was always sitting with people because I I had the acumen to to play just about anything, not not everything. So when Lowell passed, I. I uh, I wanted to play with Linda Ronstadt, and then I played with Jackson, not well Jackson later, but James Taylor for about six years. He's a wonderful 
obviously a wonderful artist to, to connect it with. Um, so yeah, the I just Lowell was 34 years old, right? Mozart was 34. And so another way to look at what we're doing now, which I point out to people, is look, if you want to put Lowell or Little Feet or whomever in this band into uh, a worship area, <laughs> that's cool. Do so. But keep in mind, what we're doing is keeping this music alive, and thus we're keeping his memory alive. And because uh, whatever travails were going on with him, with, with a lot of people back then, he was a creative soul, a brilliant uh, musician. I think his phrasing was uh, impeccable, honestly, and uh, both as a singer and as a player. And so uh, the guys that are in the band now, Scott Sherrard, who was the musical director for uh, uh, Greg Almond, when I met him seven, six, seven years ago, when I was playing with the Doobie Brothers, he'd been studying Little Feet since like 12 years old. Wow. Same thing with uh, Tony Leone, who's on drums. And he'd been studying Richie Hayward. And, uh, but he, also, he's studying other people. But uh, these are guys that come into this thing with a, a wide swath of, of music and influences, which is another area Lowell and I discussed a lot. What are the influences? So when I, as I said at the outset of our conversation, when I went into his house, I wasn't doing it on purpose, but uh, that is in effect what I was doing, was viewing what had influenced him. And uh, so if you got jazz, you got, uh, there's an album that Zappa put out of Lenny Bruce. <laughs> so there's that aspect of it. Lowell and I love the Marx Brothers. I mentioned Groucho earlier. Uh, a song called Alone. Um, I think it was Jack Jones and uh, Kitty Carlisle, I believe. Oh, wow. And <laughs> Jack Jones did Dixie Chicken on The Tonight Show when Johnny Carson was oh my God. on board. <laughs> the, it's like a Dickinson tale, honestly. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Now, there's a lot of stories around why Lowell left playing with Frank Zappa. Okay. What's the one that you believe is the reason why? Well, Frank asked him to leave. He asked him to form his own band. He did so upon hearing a song called Willin, which had drug references. Weed, whites, and wine. And uh, <laughs> Frank was not into to the weed aspects of it so but he also knew Lowell had a th this is a an untapped resource and he, he sent him loose and, and, and Frank was, was helpful so was Herb Cohen his manager and that's so that's the story I have I'll only say that when we first went in to sign the record deal I think Herb Herbie was there or close it's in the vicinity when we went and signed the record deal for Let It Roll uh, gosh oh, yes 87, 88 somewhere in there uh, Herbie was the first guy walking out of the, the new Warner building and I reminded him of that so there was this kind of bookends going on oh wow yeah yeah and you guys uh, during that period uh, 
when I was at uh, QFM 96 in Columbus, you and Paul and Richie came into the studio and did a scaled-down version of uh, a few songs, which was pretty amazing, pretty pretty <laughs> special radio, really, for, yeah. for that time. Yeah. You know, sounded so awesome. Cool. Lowell was somebody who had a lot of... Uh, a lot of, a lot of great, uh, great lines, right? I mean, he yeah. he was he was quick to to throw out some funny stuff. Any any in particular that uh, come to mind that uh, are Lowellisms on this day, on his birthday? You know, uh, well, happy birthday, Lowell. Well, uh, hope you're hanging out with whomever you love up there and yeah. uh, wherever you are. His soul, someplace, that's yep. for sure. Um, I don't remember so much witticisms from him. I remember a lot more from Richie Hayward, uh, who was from Iowa. But but Lowell, uh, he had that sense of humor where we'd be sitting around a table at Richie's house. And this is uh, in West L.A., just off of Sunset Boulevard. And uh, right next to the Cock and Bull restaurant, there were Spanish apartments that were there. These apartments were filled with writers, drug dealers, uh, uh, Musicians, etc. But Lowell would like get up on the window and put his face there and scare the hell out of us. This is one of those pranksters, man. He liked having a good time. He did. He he, he really did. And I, I think that's that's the essence of when when people are having fun, which we did during the making of um, uh, Pizza Don't Fail Me Now. Uh, his daughter, Anara, was born. And that was a really, I, I think that was a great time in his life. Uh, and for us, as a result of it. Um, in many ways, he was like Jerry Garcia. Uh, during the times that were not um, exemplary of, uh, of fun and joy, he was, he kind of disappeared for periods of time, as did Jerry. And um, or, or what I've read and heard. Um, you go, well, oh, he'll be back, don't worry about it. <laughs> that, kind of, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, Fred Tackett, who's been with us for, he's one of the first people I met in L.A. Um, Fred told me, remember when he was running for office for the Musicians Union? I go, no. Really? I, I, and I go, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I, that is a, rings a vague bell. Well, Fred got us our first gig with Jimmy Webb. At a, a paying gig, I should say, for Little Feet, at a uh, Jimmy's birthday party in Encino, California. So Fred came from that world of, and he knew Lowell, got a couple, well, a few years before I met him. Uh, he was playing with Sonny and Cher, <laughs> Jimmy Webb. Uh, when you look at Fred's discography, it's it's about like mine. It's uh, it's sort of like, well, when did you guys have time to go to the bathroom? You know that kind of right. stuff. So it was nuts. I love it. So um, there's a documentary in the works? There is. Uh, Jesse Lauder is a director. Uh, there is a documentary he just has out now with uh, Susan Tedeschi and Derek Trucks and Joe Cocker, Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Wow. And so the survivors of that uh, confluence... <laughs> um, 
all got together later and they were reminiscing about Joe and they had some great uh, footage of Cocker when he was around and what that tour was about. So um, he knows how to tell a story and ultimately that's uh, uh, that's what I who I wanted was somebody that not only could tell a story but listen to the story and that's there. We don't need to promulgate the the bridge, like a Monty Python skit. The bridge, the castle was built, it sunk into the swamp. The bridge was built, it was blown up by the, you know. <laughs> that happens to everybody. You can always, you can always uh, allude to something without being uh, hammering it into the ground, I guess. Sure. And uh, I think the better story is the creative aspect of what we were doing and how it ties into what we're doing now all these years later. That's what Little Feet is. It's, uh, it's bigger than any of us, and I figured that out quite a few years ago. Yeah, it's, it's gone through so many generations, incarnations, you know, creative processes, and still cranking it out, for sure. Um, how do you use taking a walk yourself, uh, probably, I'm assuming, out in Montana, to kind of you know, help you creatively or inspire you? Uh, how, how were you able to do that in the wide expanse of Montana? <laughs> well, I think anywhere. Well, so much of what we do is compartmentalized, right? It's between the ears. <laughs> and, uh, um, but if you can find a place that it could... I mean, I found it just walking in New York City the other day. You just, you're just looking, you're, you're able to think, you can kind of settle down a little bit. Oh, if you're not uh, looking for buses that might hit you, um, it's it's just you, you, the reflective mode is really what you're you're involved in. You know, wherever you can find it, I mean, Dick Ellington used to get it, uh, those those reflective modes sitting in the cab, you know, uh, taking a shower. You're <laughs> you go, oh my gosh, I got to retain his thoughts, so I can write it down when I get out of the shower, that kind of thing. Um, the mind has a mind of its own. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, photography is relatively new for you? Yeah, listen, I, like I said, I turned 73 in March. Same day as, uh, um, well, James Taylor's a year older than me, but we're, our birthdays are March 12th. Happy, and, happy, happy. Thanks. And uh, I told James, you're like the canary in the coal mine. As long as you're doing good, I think I'll do good. Um, <laughs> but... The photography, uh, I began in my 50s. Uh, so, I think, well, I don't know if Lowell said this now that I think about it, but it's, it is a truism that we talk ourselves out of far more things that we, than we talk ourselves into. Oh, I can't do this because of that. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I play piano, but how many people in the world play piano? <laughs> Shouldn't I be playing guitar? You know, that, that kind of thing. The inquisitiveness is what, is what pulls us out of that, pulls us out of ourselves, which um, are either wildly ambitious or are completely in denial of what, what is in front of us. And <laughs> it's an odd mixture, but the, the steps of jumping in that pool and taking the dive, uh, before you take that dive, there's a lot that goes into your head. Temperature of the water, can I swim? How close is the side of the pool? Am I going to hit my head on the side of the pool? I, I mean, all those things that you just 
kind of build up and they, they stall the process. And what you want to do when you can as a creative person is to, to open that up to where the creativity will come out. In other words, stop editing yourself. Mm-hmm. So, um, What beautiful advice for creative process. Well, <laughs> I'm just glad I've lived long enough to be able to articulate it. Because that was another thing. Remember the Tom Wolfe book, The Right Stuff? They, those astronauts, and they, it wasn't uh, manly, I guess, to, to question what they were doing. They just did it, right? Right. And, and we kind of adapted that attitude as well uh, in the 70s of not looking or analyzing what we did. Why did we make that a 2-4 bar instead of a 4-4 four, four bar? I just, well, I don't know, we just did it. And later I went, you know, I want to know why, why I'm doing this. Right. And the fear, I, I was talking to a guy, a, a driver in a car, you know, taking me someplace. He was a musician. And I said, do you ever like play scales or any of that stuff? And he says, no, no. I said, is that because, or study music, because you think it will take away from your creativity? He said, yeah. I said, okay. I'm going to share something with you. When you add learning about a subject, in this case music, and the notion of playing scales, which John Coltrane did at nauseum, <laughs> um, they add to your vocabulary. They don't take anything away. He went, I never thought of it like that. Wow. I said, no, I didn't either. That's why I'm sharing it with you. You want to broaden your vocabulary, not restrict it. Wow. Have you seen Chasing Train, the documentary on Hulu? I, you know, I did. I, and uh, we were talking about this last night. Also, the, the documentary on uh, uh, Bill Evans on Blue Note Records. Uh, oh, I haven't seen those. And, uh, and lastly, uh, A Birth of the Cool on um, Miles Davis. And th- that was the one documentary I forgot was the John Coltrane documentary. Lovely documentary. Oh, I'd see those photography. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Going back to photography, you know Henry Diltz? Yes. Henry Diltz and I took a walk a couple weeks back in L.A. Oh, cool. And there was a beautiful moment. We're walking, and it describes, you know, him really beautifully where we're taking a walk, and he had to stop at a very moment (laughs) and whip out his little portable you know, camera, whatever sure. it was, because he saw something in the window that was an image yes. that just was made him curious. And I was like, wow, at 83 years old, this guy is still loving his view of the world that he can kind of capture, you know? That's right. Well, you see things, you know, and uh, Henry is a wonderful photographer. Uh, he's taken photos of everybody. Including Little Feet, and uh, but I never, you know, what he brings to it, and what any photographer brings to it, it's kind of like a musician. We we go through the auditory sources, but so he's, I would bet that he he watched a lot of films growing up, and what you're doing is you're educating your eye to the best cinematographers in the world. Other work for John Huston or uh, David Lean, uh, Kubrick, on up and down. And so when you see something, 
you have a chance to a talk yourself out of it because well everybody's done it before or you figure out that what's unique about human beings is we all have that little bit in us that shares our view of what that is maybe Kubrick's view has got a or David Lean's has got a bigger picture to it I mean I don't mean literally but but the uh, well actually it is literal we're that expanse is in uh, Lawrence of Arabia. But maybe you're just capturing one of the, the mounds or the flow of the sand. It's all there, you know. Where, where, where does your vision literally and figuratively take you? And I, when I figured that out with, with photography for myself, when I hit that shutter, it was like hitting middle C on a keyboard. As a child, I went, oh no, <laughs> now I'm off and running. My wife, Polly, is a wonderful photographer, too. There's, a, there's an image of Richie Hayward that we, we showed last night uh, in Time Loves a Hero. And it looks like the, the, the photo like this, it's, it's, it's raked up, and he's like got this petific smile on his face. He's playing the drums. It's in a sepia tone. She took that photo, and he died two weeks later. And I told her, I said, what that photo uh, exemplifies is... This, this is where Richie lived, literally. Uh, he had so much fun. When he got off stage, he was shaking. We, we threw towels on him. So he only played two or three songs that night. It was up in uh, Vancouver Island, I think. So, um, you know, Paul went to Japan uh, a few weeks before he passed. And I know Coltrane, one of the last things he did was he, he went to Japan. Yep. And Paul was first in that stuff. He, I got him a Charles Mingus book one year uh, for his birthday. But that's where, that's where we gain inspiration from others. That's where that, the connectiveness of things. It doesn't always have to be music. It can, it can be food. It can be politics. It can be uh, relation, obviously relationships, which are uh, the most important. But they all inform everything else of who we are as human beings. And I think that's the thing that's the most dramatically upsetting to me this day and age. And conversely, the most, uh, where, where I get the most excited about things are the fact that there's so many people that just, they, they don't want to intellectualize anything. To, to, intellects any, to intellectualize is, uh, is like taboo, you know? They're shutting themselves off from the world. It's how, it's how people like Hitler, um, any any kind of dictatorship, they want that father figure. They'll, they'll go, yeah, he's a bastard, but he made the decision, not me. Well, hey, we need to make decisions too. John Lewis, God bless him. You know what I mean? I'm not a religious person, but I got to say that, that that man had some soul, and uh, he might have been more of the Godfather of soul than even. <laughs> James Brown where it counts you got some soul Billy and thanks for the joy that you bring me still to this day and to many fans over the years and to this day and I'm so grateful that we were able to, to take a walk me too I enjoyed the walk very much Buzz thank you Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.